Hi, everybody. This is Sarah Avery, host of Vox Tablet. I have some sad news to share. David Rakoff, a wonderful writer, storyteller, actor, and an all-around mensch, truly, died yesterday after battling cancer. David was 47 years old, and to know him even a little bit was to love him. As a contributor to Tablet and to its predecessor site, nextbook.org, David wrote several pieces. He wrote a phenomenal blog about going to see every film in a two-week Woody Allen Film Festival. He wrote very movingly about the practice of slichot. Those are the prayers of penance recited before the high holidays. And then there's this really great, fantastic piece he wrote for us about Felix Salton, a Viennese critic who dabbled in disparate literary forms from fairy tales to soft porn. You can find all of these pieces on our site, tabletmag.com. In David's memory, we're pulling up an old episode from our archive. It's a small way of acknowledging this enormous loss. The podcast we've decided to share with you is my conversation with David about the aforementioned Felix Salton. We chose it because it captures David's very particular enthusiasms, his warmth, his intelligence, and his appreciation for the dark side of things. He also reads a long and pretty chilling passage from the original Bambi in his singular style. Here it is, back from 2006, David Rakoff. This is a podcast from nextbook.org, your source for Jewish literature, culture, and ideas. I'm Sarah Ivry. Today, we're giving you a little test. Ready? Name this movie. Here's a hint. It's about a young fawn. What's the matter? What happened? Did the young prince fall down? Is he hurt? No. He's all right. Now listen to this. I was trembling with longing and horniness. He looked most attractive in his blue velvet suit, his bare knees and the lower part of his thighs, white and pink and already slightly muscled. To find out what those two things have in common, we're talking today to writer David Rakoff. David, welcome to Next Book. Hello. So, Bambi, soft porn, help me out. What do they have in common? Well, Bambi... uh a Life in the Woods, I think it's called, and The Memoirs of Josephine by Josephine Mutzenbacher uh, are both written by Felix Salton, who was a Jewish Viennese writer who was born, I think, in 1869 and died in 1945. Mm-hmm. And was this his real name? His original name was uh, Sigmund Salzman, I think, and his family was originally from Hungary. And he moved to Vienna with them, obviously, at the age of three weeks in 1869. In 1867, uh, Vienna granted citizenship rights to Jews, which was a big thing in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And lots of Jewish migration happened then. Mm-hmm. So Felix Salton wrote Bambi in 1923. And we're all of us, or many of us, familiar with the story. It's a deer in the woods. There's bunnies. Something tragic happens, but goodness prevails. What is the original book like? Uh, The book was an astonishment to me. The book is filled with great joy and great sorrow, but the overwhelming sensibility of the book is one of real, um, a close resemblance to the way life is. Uh, These creatures are clearly anthropomorphized. I mean, they all speak English, and before they were translated, I guess they spoke German. German, But they are complex and emotional beings. The deers themselves are by no means um, the greatest family values paragons that you can imagine. The men, the bucks, are simply nowhere to be seen. They come in and out like these strange 
Zen master numinous presences, and they come in, you know, the old stag of the forest who turns out to actually be Bambi's father will occasionally make an appearance and say something rather kung fu-like, cryptic, right. you know, uh, philosophical. Like but what? then he's gone. Yeah. Uh, you know, essentially, um, one day Bambi is sure that he hears his mother and the, the old stag is, it is not your mother. And it turns out to be some sort of hunter decoy deer call. Which uh-huh. I hadn't, but he, he never just says, it's, you know, dude, it's the hunters. It, it's it's this all this terribly oblique uh, moral lessened. Mm-hmm. And there's a point in fact where Bambi, when he's growing up and he's an adolescent buck, uh, and Faline, who's both his cousin and his essential love interest, he uh, essentially rejects her, but not in favor of anything but solitude. The, the entire book is similarly uh, nicked and abraded and real in that way. And it's extraordinary because of it. Maybe you can share a passage of it with us. Well, I think the passage to share is actually not the death of Bambi's mother, which is terrifying, but the passage that really uh, so unseated me and that I couldn't stop reading both to myself and to other people was this passage about the winter. Winter becomes a time where everything that is good in the forest during the summer is forgotten. And the animals are really reduced to their basest instincts and they turn on one another and they're hungry and things are just horrible and there's a sense that things will never get better. So this is something that happens in the winter. Uh, You know, in the thing that I'm going to read, there's references to he and him in uppercase H, the way uh, God or Christ is mentioned in the Bible. And of course, he or him is man, all-powerful and with the capacity to uh, arbitrarily decide to be wicked and vengeful Mm -hmm. at the drop of a hat. It's chapter 23. The forest was again under snow, lying silent beneath its deep white mantle. Only the crow's calls could be heard. Now and then came a magpie's noisy chattering. The soft twittering of the titmice sounded timidly, then the frost hardened and everything grew still. The air began to hum with the cold. One morning a dog's baying broke the silence. It was a continuing, hurrying bay that pressed on quickly through the woods, eager and clear and harrying with loud yelps. Bambi raised his head in the hollow under the fallen tree and looked at the old stag who was lying beside him. "'That's nothing,' said the old stag in answer to Bambi's glance. Nothing that need bother us. Still, they both listened. The baying grew nearer. It was angry and panting and relentless. It sounded like the bark of a small hound. It came constantly closer. Then they heard panting of another kind. They heard a low, labored snarling under the angry barking. Bambi grew uneasy, but the old stag quieted him again. We don't need to worry about it, he said. They lay silent in their warm hollow and peered out. The footsteps drew nearer and nearer through the branches. The snow dropped from the shaken boughs, and clouds of it rose from the earth. Through the snow and over the roots and branches, the fox came springing, crouching and slinking. They were right. A little short-legged hound was after him. One of the fox's forelegs was crushed and the fur torn around it. He held his shattered paw in front of him, and blood poured from his wound. He was gasping for breath. His eyes were staring with terror and exertion. He was beside himself with rage and fear. He was desperate and exhausted. Once in a while he would face around and snarl so that the dog was startled or would fall back a few steps. 
Presently the fox sat down on his haunches. He could go no further. Raising his mangled forepaw pitifully, with his jaws open and his lips drawn back, he snarled at the dog. But the dog was never silent for a moment. His high, rasping bark only grew fuller and deeper. Here, he yapped. Here he is. Here, here, here. He was not abusing the fox. He was not even speaking to him, but was urging on someone who was still far behind. Bambi knew as well as the old stag did that it was he the dog was calling. The fox knew it, too. The blood was streaming down from him and fell from his breast into the snow, making a fiery red spot on the icy white surface and steaming slowly. A weakness overcame the fox. His crushed foot sank down helpless, but a burning pain shot through it when it touched the cold snow. He lifted it again with an effort and held it quivering in front of him. Let me go, said the fox, beginning to speak. Let me go. He spoke softly and beseechingly. He was quite weak and despondent. No, 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 the dog howled. The fox pleaded still more insistently. We're relations, he pleaded. We're brothers almost. Let me go home. Let me die with my family at least. We're brothers almost, you and I. No, 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 the dog raged. Then the fox rose so that he was sitting perfectly erect. He dropped his handsome pointed muzzle onto his bleeding breast, raised his eyes and looked at the dog straight in the face. In a completely altered voice, restrained and embittered, he growled, Aren't you ashamed, you traitor? No, 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 yelped the dog. But the fox went on, You turncoat, you renegade. His maimed body was taut with contempt and hatred. You spy, he hissed. You blackguard. You track us where he could never find us. You betray us, your own relations, me who am almost your brother, and you stand there and aren't ashamed. Instantly, other voices sounded loudly round about. Traitor, cried the magpie from the tree. Spy, shrieked the jay. Blackguard, the weasel hissed. Renegade, snarled the ferret. The fury that had burst from the fox released an embittered anger in all of them, and the blood spilt on the snow that steamed before their eyes, maddened them, and made them forget all caution. The dog stared around him. Who are you? he yelped. What do you want? What do you know about it? What are you talking about? Everything belongs to him, just as I do. But I, I love him. I worship him. I serve him. Do you think you can oppose him, poor creatures like you? He is all-powerful. He's above all of you. The dog was quivering with exultation. Traitor, cried the squirrel shrilly. Yes, traitor, hissed the fox. Nobody is a traitor but you, only you. The dog was dancing about in a frenzy of devotion. Only me, he cried. You lie. Aren't there many others on his side? The horse, the cow, the sheep, the chickens? Many, many of you and your kind are on his side and worship him and serve him. They're rabble, snarled the fox, full of a boundless contempt. Then the dog could contain himself no longer and sprang at the fox's throat. Growling, spitting, and yelping, they rolled in the snow a writhing, savagely snapping mass from which fur flew. The snow rose in clouds and was spattered with fine drops of blood. At last, the fox could not fight any more. In a few seconds, he was lying on his back, his white belly uppermost. He twitched and stiffened and died. Wow. Isn't that something? Yeah, that is incredibly violent. I mean, the feeling of threat, it's palpable. And the sudden denunciation by all these creatures, it's its quite extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Given that this book is being written in the early 20s and it's coming out of the era of the First World War and we're heading into the Second World War, how much is this a parable for just the general climate and the climate of fear that may have been sort of building in Europe at the time? 
Well, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, what's really strange is that what inspired Salton to write the book, apparently, was a visit to the Alps. And he was so charmed by the wildlife and the nature. Mm -hmm. But he brings to it a very realistic sensibility. I mean, the, the scene in which Bambi's mother is killed is nothing short of a pogrom. I mean, you know, suddenly the very ground is betraying them. They can't be safe anywhere. And all the creatures are suddenly scrambling over one another to get away. And, of course, they're surrounded, and it just ends horribly for most of them. Although, you know, the Jews in Vienna and certainly uh, Sultan and his cohort, which was the Jung Wien, mm -hmm. which was this young Vienna uh, coterie of artists and uh, uh, critics and, and thinkers who all gathered and essentially codified and established cafe society in Vienna. I think they had pretty nice lives, but I think that you're right. I think that it was all somewhat probationary. One thing that strikes me in that passage is that it is so profoundly violent. How, in, in what universe is this appropriate material for a child to read? Well, it's interesting you say that. I mean, children's stories until I think fairly recently were in no way uh, particularly consoling. I mean, the original grim fairy tales. And most children's stories were, were for the basis of moral instruction. Mm -hmm. And for, the best way to do that was to scare the hell out of children. So they're often uh, illuminated and elevated by nothing consoling or nice happening. I mean, even Cinderella, uh, in the real Cinderella, the glass slipper doesn't fit but they make it fit. Each ugly stepsister makes it fit. One cuts off her heel. The other one cuts off her toes. And they're riding away from the little hut. And it's the birds who come down. And they shriek, look at the blood, look at the blood. And you look down and out of the glass slippers, pouring all this blood. So mm -hmm. this is relatively tame, mm -hmm. I think. Do you know if uh, there was a wide readership of this book when it was translated here in the United States? Yeah. It was a bestseller, uh, certainly in German, and then in English. And then it was Thomas Mann, apparently, who was in Hollywood, who brought it to Disney's attention. Really? Yeah. Sultan was a very influential critic. You know, he was definitely a, a figure of note in the Viennese cafe society. Let's turn to the porn now, David. All right. uh, Bambi, as we know, wasn't the only kind of thing that Felix Sultan wrote. Tell us about this sideline into pornography. Well, the sideline into pornography is, I mean, thank goodness he... Uh, had a day job as a legitimate writer because as a pornographer, he's really not that gifted, mm -hmm. I don't think. Although The Memoirs of Josephine has that kind of, um, like much porn, is um, is one long cocktease. Because the book is predicated on the pseudonymous premise that Josephine Mutzenbacher is writing from her old age, from her dotage, and she has been a famous courtesan. And she has seen things that you would not know, oh, a life of culture and beauty and music and crowned heads and privilege. You know, and all of it brought to her, accessed, because she was, although raised in the slums of the Otakring district of Vienna, which sounds like a horrible place of tenements and destitution, because she was beautiful and because she was not sexually terrified. And it was this great hedonistic spirit and freedom that allowed her to use her body to get ahead and realize that she needed privilege. So there's sort of this kind of crypto-feminist interesting thing where it's like, oh, I wonder what she sees in life. You never find out. The book, I think, stops when she's 13 years old. Mm -hmm. 
that to me is a cocktease because I'm thinking like, oh, I wonder if she goes to, you know, meet Thomas Mann. I wonder if she goes to meet, you know, essentially Felix Salton and his compatriots. Right. You never find out. The other thing that's weird is that the sex, such as it is, I mean, aside from the fact that she's seven and eight years old, so it's just... Disgusting. It's distasteful yeah, to distasteful. me. You know, it's just, you know, I don't really want to hear about yeah. it. It's um, curiously lacking in psychology. You know, Sultan was born around the same time as Freud, you know, a little bit later than Freud. But, you know, they're contemporaries. They're both from Vienna. There is simply no subtext to this sex. It's very, very weird and just dull beyond description. When was the Memoirs of Josephine written? I think the porn book was written, the Memoirs of Josephine was written in the aughts of the century, in like 1905 or 06 or something mm-hmm. like that. Which is weird because, I mean, think if this was written in the aughts of the century, the Memoirs of Josephine, think of Vienna in 1906. You know, if you're those dreamy women in those Klimt paintings, you have everything by Egon Schiele. I mean, it's just extraordinary right. that it was all about psychology and sexuality. I mean, it's all about essentially being an adolescent girl almost drunk on your own allure and somehow in some filthy drawing by Egon Schiele pleasuring yourself. And none of that comes through in mm-hmm. this book. What do you think precipitated Salton's writing this book? I, I do not know. Yeah. I confess I do not know. I'm not aware that um, he ever really uh, in his lifetime that it was acknowledged that he wrote it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it strikes me that it's something that he did to amuse himself, but it's uh, it strangely glances along the surface, given the fact that it's meant to be this uh, excavation of something much darker and deeper and more primal. And in the end, I think Bambi is the far more, um, for want of a better term, tumescent work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so... Getting back to Bambi, do you think that if uh, kids read Bambi today, would it have any kind of following? I'm not sure. It might be the kind of thing that you could read to children. Kids like gore. Kids like darkness. I mean, there's a marvelous Ogden Nash poem called Don't Cry, Darling, It's Blood All Right, Mm -hmm. which is essentially about children's love of the darker side. Mm -hmm. You know, they're, they're very into that. I think that it's the kind of book that you would have to read to children. And both because it's long, it's dense, but I actually think that some of the chapters would require the comforting properties of a warm adult thorax against which to nestle while being read to. (laughs) David Rakoff, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. This interview was recorded in 2006. David Rakoff died yesterday, August 9th. He was 47 years old. May his memory be for a blessing. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm Sarah Avery.